This is LA Court Report, covering Southern California's boys' high school basketball scene. Going to games, running events, hosting Zoom conversations. And now, the podcast. Welcome to the LA Court Report podcast. I'm Steve Wax, along with LA Court Report co-founder Brad Enright, and our guest is Vince Oliver. Vince, thanks for joining us. I appreciate you guys having me. It's our pleasure. Vince, you're from Inglewood, California. You attended Inglewood Christian School for Elementary and Loyola for High School. You were a scholarship athlete at UC Davis, and you played in the G League. You're now the coach at EULA, the Yeshiva University of Los Angeles High School. Can you talk about your experience growing up in the Christian and Catholic school environment and where you are now? What's similar and what's different? Yes, um, that's crazy to hear out loud all, all the different stops I've made. But um, man, from, from Inglewood Christian, um, I, I went to a, a Catholic school not too far from my house between Inglewood Christian and Loyola called St. John's um, to Loyola, to, to Davis, to Eula. Um, it has been quite uh, the journey. Um, I would say along the way, um, I've met so many different people from so many different backgrounds um, with, with so many different customs, traditions. For example, uh, Inglewood Christian was a predominantly African-American school, like 98% of the school <laughs> was African-American. Um, so you, you had that dynamic. And then when I went to St. John's uh, for my eighth grade year, um, it was a predominantly um, Hispanic school. So I met a lot of different people, uh, learned a lot of, about their culture. Um, and then from there, I go to Loyola, which is predominantly white. Um, but then, you know, it, it prides itself on being diverse. Um, so you had a little bit of everything in that. I wouldn't call it culture shock, but it was a very different experience. Um, just learning how to deal with different people from different places, um, you know, kind of getting to know them on a personal level. Um, and then from there, Davis, um, Davis was a very fun time, a very good time, but it was very different. Like, uh, NorCal is, is its own beast. Like there, it's so funny to me cause they, uh, <laughs> they used to always want to play this comparison game with, with Southern California. And I was like, we, we're not even worried about y'all down here. Y'all so worried about us, but, um, love my time there. Uh, met some great people, met some great connections. Um, and then if you fast forward me to, to Eula, I mean, the G League in itself was interesting. Like you got, you got guys from like, when I say all different kinds of backgrounds, like you got guys with, you know, wife and kids, you got guys like maybe they just play JC ball. You got a guy that, you know, maybe it bounced out of the NBA. So you're meeting like people literally from all different walks of life. Um, and then the icing on the cake is Eula. Like if you would have told me at some point, you know, you're going to be the head basketball coach at the Orthodox Jewish school. I just, you couldn't pay me to believe you. It, well, you could pay me, but <laughs> you'd have to pay me to believe you. But it, it's been just an interesting experience. And I, I think what I've taken from it is that people are more alike than different. So with all the differences and in, 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 in the, in the different stops I've been, and, and call it maybe um, being lucky to be in good environments, being blessed to be in good environments, um, every stop, like whatever their thing was, they've invested in it. So when I was at Inglewood Christian, like there was like the, the, the community was just so behind us and so invested in, we'd play our little eighth grade games, those games would be packed. 
and it was like such pride um, at, at Loyola. Um, it was just such pride. And they have this saying, it's, a, it's called being a man for others. And when I was there, it, it was cheesy. <laughs> but as I got older, um, I definitely appreciated um, the life experiences that, that I took from that. Um, and then to put a nice bow on it, the, being at EULA, um, just being immersed um, in the Orthodox Jewish culture, um, especially given the times that we're in now, has been a absolutely eye-opening. Can you expand on that? Yeah, so, um, man, so I could tell you a little bit about it. So I, I, I like coming into it, like I, I don't know if I knew what to expect. Um, I, was, I was open to it. Um, I, I knew I knew basketball, so I knew that, you know, we at least kind of kind of had that in common. But, um, man, just, just the people I met, the, the culture um, from their traditions, from Shabbat to, to the different holidays, to like Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, um, it was just a very eye-opening experience. I'll give you one big difference. Their school, the school calendar at Eula is not like the school calendar at any other high school in Southern California. And what I mean by that is – like for instance, like they don't celebrate Christmas, obviously. So they don't have a Christmas break. Their break is in January. So it poses some challenges in that we, during January, when other schools are just playing their normal league games, like we got guys that have planned vacations because like that's their planned break and that's their time off. So it, it, it creates for some challenges and there, there are definitely some differences, but um, as I've been immersed into it, I just kind of leaned into it and embraced it. So going with that, you have the obvious restrictions. You can't play from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. You've been in the Mission League, okay? One of the most competitive, primarily Catholic leagues in Southern California. It's a completely different environment. So other than the January break, what took some getting used to when you got to Yuba? Ooh, um... I would say so. Okay, so Shabbat is from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. Essentially, they they can't do anything. So especially anything that requires any sort of like electricity or anything like that. So you can't like have the lights on. And at first, I was like, hmm, this sounds interesting. But I was fortunate enough to actually um, experience one. We we go to a tournament, um, the beginning of the year. It's a Jewish tournament in a in Memphis, this is called the Cooper Invitational. It's one of the big ones. I'll talk about uh, Sarah Check a little later. But um, so when we go to the tournament, I, I actually got a chance to experience it. And it really is based upon like, kind of pausing your life. And it, it's based upon prayer and they have a, you know, they go to temple, they have their ceremony, um, or excuse me, they, you know, they, they, they pray, they, they do everything they do, but then they break bread and, and they, they take time to just stop and listen and communal neighbors and whatnot. So I was like, man, this is, this is actually kind of dope. Like they literally make a conscious effort to pause their life so they don't get consumed in just their day to day. And, and in doing so, like they build community, they get to know the people they're around. Um, so once I kind of understood the significance of it a little more, um, I, I learned just how to navigate it. So like there are times we have games that follow that. So I'm like, all right, I know you guys can't do anything, but you also, you know, they, they, every meal that they make on in, in most traditional households is like a Thanksgiving meal. So a lot of the wives on, they take um, that Friday off because they spend a lot of the time cooking like the entire day. It's like a big feast. 
So I was like, all right, guys, you can enjoy it. But if we have a game, you got to keep that in mind, too. You can't just kind of, you know, chow down because you can't go to sleep the rest of the day or whatever. You still got to be somewhat functional. Um, so that's a difference. Um, the school day is another big difference. So their school day is from, so traditionally, obviously not given the times now, but they get there 745 and they're done at about like 515, which sounds like a lot and it is a lot, but it's more like a junior college schedule than it is a normal high school schedule. Like they have like blocks during their day where they have just free time. Or the, sometimes depending on your schedule, you go home, they got a student center you can kind of hang out in. So they're not in class the entire time, but it's just a different structure to the day. And it's also, you know, still a long time for them to be at school. So while it worked for me, having a teaching job at another school and making it to practice, it also made at times for long days for, uh, for both of us, for, for myself and the guys. Um, and then we, we got creative. So because you, you pretty much take Saturday out of the practice schedule, um, we do a lot of, uh, even if we don't practice, we do a lot of team activities on Sunday. Um, we'll work out at the beach. Um, you know, we'll, we'll get together and we'll watch an NBA game. Sometime it may just be film. Sometime it may be yoga. But, uh, you know, we, we try and take advantage of that Sunday because, you know, we, we got two days where there's pretty much nothing going on for sure. So what advice do you have for coaches who love the game? They love coaching but they're a little unsure about how to approach a cultural difference with a player. Um, I would say to ask questions and to go in it with an open mind. Um, don't have preconceived notions. Um, I think that's something that I've learned as a coach. Um, I think the more you can build relationships, and that goes both ways. It's not just, I'll use myself as an example, me talking at one of my players, um, you know, even from as much as like there. So there was a stretch when I first got there where I had a player who was late for practice and he was late for practice often. And my first instinct was I was like, you know, I'll just throw in a name. I was like, Nikki, you can't be late for practice anymore. Um, and, and he was trying to explain the situation to me. But to be completely honest, I wasn't very receptive. So come to find out on the back end, I have an assistant coach who went to Eula. He's one of uh Coach Mike, he's one, Mike Pollock, he's one of the all-time leading scorers at EULA. Great dude. He's my right-hand man. He, he fills me in on the cultural gaps. And he's like, hey, just so you know, this player has this going on at home. And I felt so bad. I was like, man, I wish I, wish I would have just communicated. Like, I didn't understand that that, you know, that that was on his plate. So I would say just, just be open to communication and actually listen. Can you talk about the core values of EULA and how you integrate those core values into your basketball program? Yeah, so um, when I first got the job, so we, the, Rabbi Suffren, he's the president of the school, and uh, he loves basketball. Like, he makes his way to the gym every day we have practice. He gets in shooting contests with the guys. Um, when we travel, he goes with us. Like, he, he's a cool dude, and he, he's the one that has all the NBA guys in the gym. I'm going somewhere with this. So he loves who. And as much as he loves it and, and as much pride as he has, he, he leads the student section at the games. Like when I say he's into it, he's into it. And it's cool to see an administrator so vested. Um, but when I got the job and, and throughout, he would always remind me, he's like, Vince, like one thing that I, I just really want for the guys, and I hope I don't mispronounce this, but he's like, I, I, want, I want them to be Mitch. And I was like, you're going to have to explain. What does that mean? 
So then he just goes on to explain, like, within their culture, like, that's like being a stand-up person. Um, and he's like, he's like, you've seen me. I'm competitive. I want to beat you in shooting games. But he's like, win or lose, like, I, I want them to represent the school of pride. Um, you know, how we present ourselves and how, how we present ourselves during competition um, is just as important as the result, if not more important. Um, that, and that's been the biggest thing that, that I've kind of taken and definitely in, instilled in the guys. And I definitely like to think we take pride in it. We're competitive and we compete. And we're in between those lines, we're, you know, we're doing everything we can to, to win no matter who we play. But, um, you know, it's important to me that not only that I, I represent that from my perspective, but that, you know, being an outsider in the sense that I can help facilitate um, that in the player's development as well. Can you talk about a time when a player was going hard, was competing, but wasn't gelling with that behavior that your head of school wants to see and the conversation you had? You don't need to name the player's name up. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, man, it, it's happened. It's happened a handful of times. Like you know, we're still dealing with high school kids. Um, there was a time I remember in practice where uh, I think a guy was just having a tough day, and you know, his team would lose, and I'm all for you know, being competitive and not being okay with it. But he was just having a bad attitude. You know, he was isolating himself. And I, and you know, we had a little water break and I called him over and I was just like, look, man, like, I get it. I was like, I'm competitive too. But I was like, man, like, he was a senior. I was like, you're a senior. I was like, guys are watching you. I was like, how you represent this, what's on the chest and your family's coming to the games and whatnot um, is important. And I was like, but it starts in practice. Because if you do it here and I let you get away with it, then you're going to do it in the game. And that's, that's not the representation that, um, that the school wants, to be frank. And that's not what your family will want. And ultimately, I don't think that's what you will want. So, you know, we had a talk and he, he kind of was able to vent a little bit to me. Um, <laughs> I think I've grown as a listener, as a coach, for sure. Um, but uh, after that talk, I, I think he understood what, where I was coming from. And I, I dropped the – he was shocked when I, when I said it. I was like, we need you to be Mitch. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. But I know it's along those lines. And he kind of laughed, and he was like, what do you know about that, coach? I was like, look, man, I, I try to study up. <laughs> so it, it was good. It ended up being a good interaction. And, you know, every now and then just reminding them, like, as important as the basketball is, and that's what brings us together, um, it's a whole lot bigger than that. I actually remember a time where one of your players received a really questionable technical foul. I don't, a lot of refs wouldn't have called it. And you called the official over and you said, I don't have a problem with the call. I have a problem with you not explaining to the young man what he did wrong so he can correct it. I imagine your guys don't get too many technicals, but is that a conversation that you've had to have with the officials when that does happen? Um, I have from time to time, and I, I would like to think my relationship with the officials has grown. Um, you know, there, there, there are definitely some some great refs out there. I know which time you're talking about. <laughs> I vividly remember that. I think that was with Albert. But um, yeah, like I like if I'm telling the guys and I'm on them about um, how they should represent themselves and 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 how they should talk to referees and whatnot. Um, and, and they politely come over and ask and they won't explain to them, I think that's important because, one, otherwise it's just going to happen again. And, two, you know, what are we really doing? If we're really trying to better them and grow them, we don't tell them what was wrong with the mistake they made, then we're doing them a disservice. So 
there have been a handful of times where maybe not to the extent of a technical foul, but I'll, I'll tell the players to politely talk to the ref and ask them. I was like, don't, if you come at him, you know, a certain way, understand he's going to probably come back at you a certain way. Um, and then if I get the ref on my end, I may pull him aside and be like, hey, I'm, I'm trying to teach them to, to somewhat speak up for themselves. Is it cool if, you know, if you just explain to them why X, Y, Z happened? Appreciate it. So it's typical that most coaches organize team building activities heading into the season. So let's say we're in a non-COVID year. What are you doing with your players? We heard you talk about what you do on Sundays, but a lot of times right. that's in season. So heading right. into the season, how are you building cohesion? Man, so when I was at Loyola, um, we used to have a team retreat at the beginning of every year. And this was, I know culture now is, is a buzzword, but this was pre-culture buzzword. Like I remember being on travel ball teams and telling them about this. And they were looking at me like, what are you guys doing? Like, what are you talking about a retreat? And at the time it was, you know, a little bit cheesy, but, um, but there was great value in it. And it, it always brought us together. And so I was like, man, when I'm a head coach, like I definitely want to do something like that, but I want to kind of make it my own. I want to put my own twist on it. So I, I love bonding with the guys and talking with the guys about, I, I would say the topics we talk about the most are music and the NBA. Um, I'm a diehard Clippers fan. So uh, I remember last year um, we went over to a player's house when the Clippers played the Lakers to, to kick off the year and we had a big potluck and um, we picked sides and Laker fans sat on one side and the Clippers fans sat on one side and uh, siblings came or whatever. And it was like a big preseason kind of kickoff team party, like something that was relaxed and, and informal and a chance for um, players, families, coaches to be in a, non-tense environment and just kind of break bread and, and enjoy each other. So we regularly will get together and, and watch basketball games. Um, we, we've done team hikes before. Um, so I mentioned before the Cooper tournament. So when we would go on the Cooper tournament, uh, or excuse me, when we've gone to the Cooper tournament in the past, we use our downtime for planned activities. So sometimes it'll be bowling. Um, sometimes it'll be video games. Like, we'll, you know, everybody will kind of show up in a guy's room and, you know, we just kind of play video games. Um, we've done a, a couple of times they've come to practice and we've not had practice. We've played uh, dodgeball. <laughs> we've played uh, tag. And it's not to minimize the work we have at hand, but I know at times I can be demanding on them and I, I want them to enjoy the season, enjoy the process um, and get a chance to see the coaches as people too. So those are just some of the things we've done to, to kind of try and keep it light. Now, you grew up in Inglewood. Did your parents disown you when you became a Clipper fan? <laughs> so, so there's a story behind it. So when I grew up in Inglewood, the Lakers played at the Forum. No one told them to leave. They chose to leave and go to the Staples Center. So they left. And we were like, okay. So my family, we used to, we, uh, well, we still do. We, uh, we've had season tickets. We've had Clipper season tickets since 91. So I'm not gonna lie, like it's been some very lean years. And when we were going in 91, uh, we were definitely going to see the other teams play. But uh, in the process, man, they, they won me over for, for better or for worse. Um, Danny Manning, Mark Jackson, Lloyd Vaught, Benoit Benjamin, um, you know, those, those are my guys, man. So I, I, I've stuck with the Clippers and I've, under, I've understood that Laker fans, you know, I'm happy for them. I can't even talk trash right now. They, they, they earned it in the bubble. 
But uh, we're making our adjustments, and we will be back. Okay. Getting Vince, back, I can, I can. Sorry, just Vince. I'm from San Diego. I grew up in San Diego. I've lived in four states. The first NBA game I ever went to was a San Diego Clipper game. There you go. Before they moved, uh, Terry Cummings was the rookie of the year. Okay. <laughs> I think they played the Kansas City Kings. The game that I went to. Okay. No, there was a team called the Kansas City Kings. I was like nine years old. Right. This is long, I'm old. This is a long time ago. Right. Kansas City Kings are now the Sacramento Kings. Um, so I feel your pain with. <laughs> yeah. It's I haven't had game. it as long as you've had because they haven't been here as long. But uh, right. I feel your pain with with the Clippers and as from from San Diego, you know, all we experience here is heartbreak when it comes to sports. So I've really kind of detached myself from a lot of that. So I understand what you're going through. I'll bring it full circle for you. Uh, Terry Cummings' son, TJ Cummings, was on my G League team. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> so, Brad, if you saw, were wondering how old you were. I saw Ralph Sampson play down there one night. I saw the Houston Rockets come to town, and Ralph Sampson was on the Rockets. He was okay. the tallest. He was, like a, he was like a tree with arms. He was the tallest, skinniest person I've ever seen in my entire life. That's crazy. How can I play? It's like, how does he not just – Break in half. <laughs> His legs were about that big around. Like, That's crazy. But yeah, this, yeah, the San Diego Clippers and the Kansas City Kings. It's a ESPN classic for sure. <laughs> so back to your program at Eula. How do you select your team captains? Um, so I let the players decide. Um, the, the the players get to vote. Um, and the the top two or three, you know, I have some discretion from there, but. For the most part, whoever they vote, um, I, I are the team captains. Um, and kind of their responsibilities, um, you know, they I, I bounce off or they get some say in, in what days they would like off as we're moving through the season. Um, they're usually in charge of the pregame stuff. Um, they can connect with some of the assistant coaches, but, you know, that, that kind of stuff isn't my strength. So, you know, I let them take a little ownership in that. Um, warm-ups, like they connect with one of our assistants and they decide what warm-ups they'd like to do. Um, they get a decent amount of input on the schedule. So a lot of times before I send it out to the guys, I'll send it to them um, and I'll say, you know, is there anything in school I should know about? You know, what do you guys think of it? Um, you know, they do a lot of communication with the team. We have a team group chat, um, but I know they have, they have their own as well. Um, and then I, I like to ask them for feedback a decent amount because, you know, I'm not in high school anymore. So I, I don't, I, I have an idea of what their day-to-day -day is like, but at the same time, like, I don't know. And, you know, there's information that doesn't make, that doesn't always make it to me. So I, I like to, I like to think that I ask for their opinion enough that they're open to share. And I listen to them enough where, for the most part, unless there's something pressing or if I can see something down the road where, I, where I'm not going to budge and where I'm not, I'm not going to, going to bend. Um, I, I like to think that I take their advice enough that they feel comfortable sharing. And you mentioned earlier that you were a little unfamiliar with the Orthodox culture. Now that you're fully immersed in it, you're competing with Valley Torah, excellent program, shall have it, excellent program. How do the three Orthodox schools with teams manage to be so good every single year? Man, it's a... Uh... That's a good question. Um, I, I think there may be a, a talent surge in the Jewish community right now because there's definitely some talent players across all rosters. Um, 
I think Ryan and Lior um, do do an excellent job with their programs um, in terms of like their prep and the, and the competition, um, you know, to an extent on a different level, but it, it has mission league vibes in that, you know, when we play those schools, like one, just the environment is, is electric. Oh man, it's, it's electric. Um, when we play other Jewish teams or the Armenian schools, it's not a normal game. Like we'll have bigger crowds for those games than we did for our state playoff game. <laughs> like it, it's just so much wrapped into it. Um, and then in my opinion, I think those guys do an excellent job of preparation, you know, preparing their teams and whatnot. But, uh, you know, honestly, how you fare in those matchups does matter. You know, it's not only bragging rights for the year, but it's such a tight knit community um, that word starts to travel. Um, our, our new gym, our gym is recently been built. Um, that's been great at, at attracting kids. Um, and then just, you know, the more success you have and, and the way you do it, you know, having, you know, having a sense of pride and your program being about something, you know, it's, it's really small competitive edges that you try and pick up. One of the most memorable things you've ever said to me is you love the fact that your team plays for their community. You've talked about it a little, but is there anything you wanted to say to expand upon that? Yeah, um, man, I, I've, I've, I've <laughs> I guess you would say affectionately joked with, with some of the, the administrators at school. And I'm like, you, there has to be a documentary made about this like underworld of Jewish basketball. Like it's, it's all wrapped in one. So you got your school, you've got your neighborhood, like, like, you know, cause it's because of an Orthodox community, because of Shabbat, because they spend a decent amount of time walking, like the communities are tight knit and they all live typically in the same neighborhood. So our guys regularly interact with um, the Shahabit or the Valley Torah guys. Like that's just, they grew up together. They went to the same, you know, elementary schools and whatnot. Then you've got childhood, like we're talking childhood, generational friends. You've got your religion, you've got your country, and you've got your family name. you got that all wrapped in one, and the way they express that competitively is through basketball. Um, so I alluded to it before, but, but the, the, the place where you can find this exhibited at its finest is at Sarachek. So Sarachek is like, like the Jewish NCAA tournament. So at the end of the year, so we have a, a Jewish top 25 uh, rankings that gets updated weekly national. So it's a big deal. So, uh, you know, they, they put it together, they send out emails, um, you know, we send in our scores, et cetera. And then based upon this and your success during the season, your success at the, the preseason tournaments, like the Cooper Invitational Tournament I was mentioning, um, you qualify for Sarachek. And they have different brackets or whatever, but the top bracket, they take like the top 16 Jewish teams in the country. Um, and from there you battle it out. And I just remember the whole year, like, so my first year we lost in the, I believe it was the quarters of the playoffs. And, you know, I'm all sad and moping around. And then the rabbi, like, he comes put his arm around me. He's like, man, Vince, that was a tough one. He's like, but we got Sarachek. We got to get ready for Sarachek. And he's like a little kid. And I'm like, what, are, like, I've heard of it, but what, is it really that big a deal? So we go to, it's, it's held at Yeshiva University in New York. And uh, we go to Sarachek and man, it's, I mean, they're, they're streaming the games. Like they got reporters, they got uh, like everyone in the community is there. 
as long as you keep winning. <laughs> you keep winning, those games are packed, they're electric, and it's just so much pride, like all in the gymnasium that holds a couple thousand people. Um, and it's just, man, it's a, it's a very unique, super cool experience. So that, that kind of, that experience, I'm telling you, it's going to be a Netflix documentary. You're going to scroll past it one day. You know, but man, he mentioned that, but it's, it's just, it's just so much just all wrapped in one that it's a pretty cool experience. Now feel free not to answer this question. Okay. What would happen if you were going to the state championships in California uh-huh. and there was a conflict with Sarah check, which so, tournament would you go to? <laughs> so that almost happened. So so this past year, we uh, we were able to experience a little bit of success. We we went the furthest they went in school history. Um, we lost in the semis of our section. Uh, I think we're four A, um, and then we lost we lost in the first round of uh, of the state playoffs. But had we won two more games and had COVID not happened, um, there it, there was literally going to be a conflict in I think it was the southern section final, and one of the first games is Sarachek. So I told uh, the rabbi, I was like, in our AD, I was like, so you know what this means? I was like, you got to get a jet. And we got to play the game in SoCal. And we got to take the jet, the private jet. And then we got to play the game in Sarachek. Because I was like, because as you guys say your words, Sarachek is a huge deal. But this is also school history. So I like to think we would have been an NBA team for a day. And we would have played, done our East Coast road trip. But uh, that, that's an amazing question that I don't have the answer to. <laughs> There's only one way to get that question answered, Vince. Right, right. If we do our job, hopefully we have to answer that question. You have to make that decision. Right, right. But, make but it difficult like, for the, for the – get that jet. That's what I want to do. Listen, if we're in that position, then I guess you could say we are doing something right. <laughs> okay, Brad, did you have any questions? <clears throat> yeah, I did. Um, we talked before we, we came on the air, Vince. Um, you know, you said that you've been teaching in the classroom for you know ten plus years. You've taught yeah. multiple subjects. Right. So, you know, getting that knowledge, getting that background, developing lesson plans to teach math, history, physical education. Yeah. Is, how has that diversity and planning, how has that helped make you a better coach? Wow, that's a great question. Um I think being a teacher, it has helped me grow a ton as a coach. Um, one, it's taught me patience. Um, you know, it, it, at, for instance, if you're a competitive high school basketball coach and, you know, someone, you know, messes up on the scout, um, your emotion can get the best, that you, best of you at times. And that's not atypical, you know what I mean, for the environment. But, you know, if a student isn't paying attention, you can't have that same reaction in the classroom. So it, it has definitely taught me patience. And then um, I like to think that my approach, especially in, in practice, um, is from a teacher's perspective. So I kind of look at um, uh, practices similar to lesson plans, similar to planning a lesson and, and unit planning and curriculum planning and um, making my master master practice plan is very similar to writing out the curriculum for the year. Um, so there, there are a lot of parallels. And I think one thing it's, it's helped me to do, um, especially in particular when I was at Notre Dame, because I was teaching U.S. history, 
Um, I was the head of the African-American Student Association. I was a moderator for that club. I was in admissions. Um, and I was the boy, I was over the boys basketball program. But that was kind of the way I wanted it, um, especially with that being my first varsity head coaching job, because I felt like in order to get the success I wanted, like I needed to be fully immersed in the community. So when I look back and, you know, we went from humble beginnings to, you know, competing in the state playoffs, but those kids in the student section, like I had individual, you know, stories with each of them. This one was in my history class. And I was chaperoning the, you know, the dances. Like one of my players was dating, you know, this girl here. And, um, you know, just just so many individual stories. Or I wrote letter of rec for this kid. Um, I, I just think that it, it, the being a part of a community um, is something that is really um, important to me. And I think teaching and coaching, um, I think it just, just gives you more insight um, into your players and their lives. You've, you've played for some really good coaches. You, you played for Jimmy Williamson. I think you played for Jamal too, correct? Yeah, he was an assistant when I was there. Okay, so you, you know, so, you know, you know, Jamal was still there. Then you went to UC Davis. You played for Gary Stewart. Then you played, you know, you spent some time in the G League. So you've had a pretty diverse basketball experience as well, been exposed to a lot of different coaching styles, playing right. styles, offense, defense, the professional game, which is unlike anything else that's out there. Right. What are there any things that if we went to a EULA practice, we would see anything from those three levels maybe that you, you know, that you learned or you, you, that was taught to you at Loyola, Davis, and in the G League? Is there anything that's you're doing today still? Yeah, no doubt. And there, there's one more influence that I would add um, or someone who's influenced my coaching career. And Robert Eichhardt, he runs BTI. Um, and I would say, especially from Coach Eichhardt and Coach Adams, um, you would see <laughs> large fingerprints of, of their influence on, on me. And I'll give you some examples. Um, with, with Coach Adams and with Loyola, um, you know, the whole sense of the team being a family um, and, and actually getting to know your players and like investing in your players. Um, I, I, that influence definitely comes from him. Um, she, I, I think I mentioned this to him, but he, he's one of the reasons why I got into teaching and coaching. He had such a profound impact on my life. Like my first two years at Loyola, he was my carpool. So after practices, he would drive me home. So that was probably a good and bad thing. I, I don't know if I could have coached <laughs> 15, 16 year old events, but uh, he definitely had the patience and found a way. So we spent a, we, we often joke about this. We spent a lot of uh, evenings in my driveway with me saying how things should be and him patiently listening and saying, Vince, I hear you, but that's just not how it's going to be. <laughs> so uh, definitely um, the patience, um, being a part of a community, um, you know, the investing in people. Um, definitely influence from him. And then from Coach Eichhardt, um, X and O, preparation, fundamentals. Um, in a lot of ways, he was really ahead of his time with, with a lot of the stuff he did. He had a no-dribble lead. So if you come to practice, like, we have heavy ball. We do a lot of dri uh, drills without dribbling. Um, just kind of outside-the-box stuff to kind of try and get the, the absolute most out of, out of the players we have. Um, and then on the college level, uh, playing for Coach Stewart, um, another guy who his scouting reports were 
were intense. Like, you know, you, and you had to be on it. So if he's pulling a play that Cal State Fullerton ran called Taco, how are we guarding Josh Akoya coming off the pin down? And you don't know it, <laughs> he's going to tell you about it. But just his attention to detail and – I learned how to really watch film um, when I was at UC Davis. There's another coach there, coach, uh, his name was Ron, Ron Dubois. And uh, he, he had a brief stint with the Memphis Grizzlies. And uh, I'll never forget, he, he came back. So we were, so he, he was from Northern California. I think he was from Lodi. So he was there my freshman year. And then after that, he would always just kind of be around, almost like a consultant role, you know, but he was, you know, further in his career. And this was after he worked with the Grizzlies and he came back and he uh, and so he taught me how to watch film, and so I uh, was always wanted him to be satisfied with like my effort and how I was playing, and I'll never forget this. And so we come to practice. We had a practice early morning practice, and let's say the practice at eight thirty. So I showed up at eight twenty, and I'm thinking, man, I was one of the first people here. So he's like, you know, guys, I'm just really disappointed. I'm really disappointed. He was like, I was here at 7.30, and I'm the only one here. And I looked, and I was like, man, I never looked at it like that. And I was like, okay. So he's like, when I coach OJ Mayo, I said, OJ, you need to do X, Y, Z. He said, he looked me in the eye, said, yes, sir, and he just did it. And then he told a story about how Mike Miller became a great shooter because he would take – this is pre-Uber. He would take the taxi before um, the team buses over to the arena. And he's like, anybody could be a great shooter. You just have to put in the time. And it like, it just clicked for me. And I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. I don't know why I never looked at it like that. So from that point on, like, I was like, man, not only do I want to be the first guy here, but I want to try and beat the coaches here. Or I'm going to stay to the coaches. They're going to have to kick me off the court after. Um, so you definitely see that in, in, my, in my practices as well, because I try to pass along those stories. And you know maybe those guys can catch on to it. Um, sooner than I did in putting in that extra work. You said something earlier about, I mean, we talked about earlier, you know, you, Christian school, Catholic high school. Yeah. You know, Notre Dame, now you're at a Jewish school. You mentioned how, you know, everybody was very much the same. Right. I experienced that too. I mean, I started my first job was at Cal State Dominguez Hills, a division two school. Yep. I went there to the Naval Academy. You know, that's pretty big, pretty big change in, Right, Everything. right. But, you know, the players at Dominguez Hills were – the players at Naval Academy were the same guys. They were just better at math. I mean, that's right. – <laughs> and I went from there, I went to a junior college in Texas, right, scholarship junior college. You know, the guys were just the same, not as good at math as the guys at Navy were. Everything else, they were just the exact same, you know. Right. Mages, hell, same interests, everything was exactly the same. So when you said that, that they're all pretty much the same across the board, that was really interesting to see. Do you find that – did you find that in just as players? And was there a big difference in – obviously, the, the religions are all different, but was there a big difference in the beliefs, patterns, and the practices and those types of things of the actual religion itself? Right. Um, yeah, in terms of the players, honestly, like, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, like, they're, they're still just high school kids. Yeah. So a, a lot of uh, – you know, you know, they all listen to the same music. I know that when I walk in the gym, like they got the same music playing, you know, whether I was at Notre Dame or Eula, um, you know, they, they got similar swagger, you know, they got the same, you know, headphones and, 
they talk about the NBA the same and whatnot. So um, th there are definitely um, a, a lot of similarities there. But then on a, on a deeper level in terms of um, uh, kind of the religious aspect, um, I, I would say that uh, being aware, like serving your community and, and getting outside yourself was a common theme. It was a common theme when I was at Loyola. We called it being a man for others. Um, when I... Uh, when I went to Notre Dame, they're, you know, what they pride themselves on is educating the heart and mind. Um, and they, like, everything they do, like, they, they talk about that. And, you know, it had an impact. And you could see it um, played out with, with the young men that, you know, I taught and coached. And then when you take it to Eula and, and being Mitch, all right, being, like, how you present yourself and how you carry yourself, you know, you, you can phrase it differently. You can, you can wrap it different things and, you know, different faiths but but ultimately a lot of ultimately what i took from it at least was a lot of it came down to one how you represent yourself and also getting outside of yourself so the last question that i have and we'll wrap up after this is what lessons have you learned specifically at eula that you want young coaches to know about your experience there that's a great question. I would, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what it is. And maybe it just coincides with being at my time at Eula, but I would say uh, to listen and to be patient. I would say listening and patience are two, as a young coach, um, as I, I put it like this, as I've gotten more experience, I've learned just how valuable those things are. And I'll give you an example. Um, I'll talk about the patients first in the listening. So with the patients, it, it, you know, heard the process, you know, embrace the process. Like, I, you know, I'm on Twitter, I see process quotes and everything like that. And when I was at Notre Dame, I was telling the guys, um, we, when we made it to the CIF championship, I was like, hey, just relax, just just relax and have fun. And my dad was like, you don't sound relaxed and it doesn't sound like you're having fun. So I'm not sure what you expect them to do. And he was like, just enjoy being there. Just enjoy the work you've done to get to this point. You know, what's gonna happen is gonna happen. Like, and especially being a coach, the biggest adjustment is we control it and you know, maybe the scout gets you six to eight points, but you, there's so much you just don't control. So if you check your boxes and you believe in your process and you could somehow exuberate that or pass that to the guys and, and demonstrate that, then, you know, that that's a win. And, and it'll, it'll take care of itself from there. Um, and, and then the, the listening, I would say, listen to your players. Like I remember when I was a player, there were times where I wanted my coach to listen, like, you know, my body maybe didn't feel well or, I wanted to go extra or I wanted to do more or whatever the case may be. And there are definitely times where I was heard and there are definitely times where I wasn't heard. And I, I just really feel like as I, the more I've coached, the more I'm likely to listen to my players. Now that doesn't always mean that whatever they say goes like ultimately I'm in this position because of the wisdom, hopefully the foresight to make whatever decision is best. And then sometimes have those tough conversations too. So it's not always all good, but I, but I don't know which direction to go in until I actually listen to what you're saying. 
So I would say an area I've grown in the most and would just encourage young coaches to do is don't jump to conclusions, maybe wait before you get happy, explode, whatever the case may be, and just listen, take it in, and then use that wisdom, you know, to make your decision. That makes a lot of sense. And Vince, very well said. I, I know this, the young men at Eula are fortunate to have you as a coach you are not only a man for others, you are a mensch. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for tuning in to the LA Court Report podcast, an LA Court Report production. 